0: Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, awesome. I'm so excited to be with you. I um, This is something that the Lord has been kind of percolating in me for a while, and I haven't had a chance to, like, really develop it and teach it, so I'm really excited to be here this morning. And um, before I start, just if you can just keep Kim and her family in your prayers, because Satan does not want us to let go of our fear of rejection. And so just in the next few hours, if you think of it, just say a prayer of protection over her and her family because she does have a really amazing message for tonight. So, um, I'm not really big into sports. I, I don't dislike them. I played sports all the way through high school. Um, but I married a guy from Holland who never played a sport ever. And so he wasn't raised like knowing basketball and baseball and that kind of thing. Um, my son is super into sports and so is my dad and my brothers. Um, But we're kind of the family, like, we kind of show up at the end. Like, we watch the Super Bowl, or if there's, like, the championships, then we'll just kind of, like, glide in at the end, you know, and be a part of it. Uh, But really, we don't really pay attention much throughout the seasons. But about a month ago, we kind of perked up because um, we heard about something exciting happening with golf. And um, believe me, golf would be the last thing I would ever want to watch. Um... But it was the Masters, and Tiger Woods was back. And um, if you know, he won the Masters before, and he, made, um, he changed the game of golf, apparently. And uh, But then he had more than a decade of scandals and injuries, and he had tried to come back before, and um, just one thing after another kind of kept him from coming back, but this year, He came back, and he won for a fifth time, and it was like a really big deal, and it's a really awesome comeback story. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever had a really good comeback? Have you ever done something really, really bad or had something done to you, um, but you were able to overcome it and move forward, and maybe um, it was even better than before? Because I've been thinking a lot about um, King David from the Old Testament and his life and how in the world was he able to make such a profound comeback after he did some really, really bad, really stupid things. We read about David as a shepherd boy all throughout First and 2 Samuel and he's described as a man after God's own heart. He grew up protecting his father's sheep He wrote songs of worship to the Lord. He was chosen to be king of Israel. He defeated a giant named Goliath. He was chased by the then king Saul. He hid in caves for years. Finally, he was um, king, and he was celebrated and famous and powerful and wealthy. And yet, in 2 Samuel, we read a totally sinful Disgusting episode of his life. So he was king and he sees a woman, a married woman, Bathsheba, bathing on her roof. And because he has authority and because he has no one to stop him, he sent her to his palace and he slept with her. And it was just a sick abuse of power. And then she becomes pregnant because of this. And so David has to scramble and figure out how to cover his sin. So Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was out in battle, very honorable, integrous man. So he thinks, I'll call Uriah back from battle, and then he'll come home, he'll sleep with his wife, then her pregnancy will be, because, you know, like legitimate. So he calls Uriah back, but Uriah is such an honorable man, he's like, I'm not going to... My, my men are on the battlefield. I'm not going to go do that while well, my men are out there fighting. So he sleeps, like, on the front porch and, and never, never, like, you know, consummates anything with Bathsheba. So that didn't work. So then David sends Uriah to the front lines, and lo and behold, um, Uriah is killed. So now David has taken care of his problems. And he successfully now made Bathsheba a widow, and he marries her. Later, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and David has to deal with the consequences of his sin, including the death of their baby. And David repents of his sin and um, moves on. And wouldn't you think that for the rest of your life, every time you look at Bathsheba, you would think, like... I killed her husband. Like, our baby is dead because of what I did. For the rest of your life, you'd kind of be marked by that shame. But here's the shocking part. As you keep reading, life goes on for him. So the question is, how did he move on from that? A few chapters later, he's out doing this and that, and it seems like he's just completely past it. How would I not let this define me? David was able to move past his sin and past his shame. He moved forward in complete restoration, complete forgiveness, and he never, ever lost his man, being a man after God's own heart status, even after all of that. So, how did he do that? He returned to writing songs and worshiping God with a clean slate. And David understood what I think a lot of us don't quite fully understand. David understood God's mercy. So recently I've been taking a really long look into mercy. And I, I know it's a familiar word. It's kind of in a long list of God's attributes. Um, we You know, it means showing compassion and forgiveness. And we're called to show mercy to others. Uh, and we read it hundreds of times in the Bible. Um, but... Let's dig into that that specific word, mercy, for, for a few minutes, and I want to start back in the Old Testament. In Exodus 25, God instructed Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, and this was quite a special chest that represented the presence of God, and it basically looked like this. And there were instructions, very specific instructions um, from Exodus 25. And starting in about verse 10, um, we read that it needed to be made of acacia wood. It was covered in gold on the inside and outside with gold rings that would hold poles for carrying. And everything was covered in gold. And God told them, Place the testimony that I give you in the ark. And now make a lid of pure gold for the chest, an anointment. Sorry, not anointment. Atonement. How about that? An atonement cover or a mercy seat at the top. And then sculpt two winged angels out of hammered gold for either side of the atonement cover. One angel at one end, one angel at the other. And make them of one piece of gold with the atonement cover. Make the angels with their wings spread, hovering over the atonement cover or mercy seat, facing One facing one another, another, but looking down on it. And set the atonement cover as the lid over the chest and place in the chest the testimony that I will give you. And I will meet you there at set times and speak with you from above the atonement cover and from between the cherubim that are on it, speaking the commands that I have for the Israelites. So it basically kind of looked like this if we have the parts labeled. So at the top of the ark is the mercy seat. You can see that arrow. And then flanked on either side by the cherubim. And this was kept in the Holy of Holies and later in the tabernacle. And animal sacrifices had to be made to atone for the sins of the Israelites. Um, And at this very place, at this mercy seat, was where God would meet his people. The mercy seat on the ark all pointed, it was all pointing to the work that Christ would do at the cross. So then if we move fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus Christ became our atonement. In Romans 3, verse 25, we read, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. The Greek for sacrifice of atonement is the same meaning, the same exact meaning as atonement cover or mercy seat. And again all of this refers to Christ and the redemption that he would do for us. And Romans 3 again states that God put God put forward Christ as our atonement. And Jesus became the acceptable, wrath-satisfying sacrifice on our behalf, our behalf. So Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. No longer do we need to do animal sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled all of that. And this and then he re- resurrected from the dead, and he conquered sin and death. So this is the coolest part. So if we look in John 20, verse 12, this is where Jesus has died, and they buried him in the tomb. And then in the morning, the, the women came to, to um, you know, care for the body of Jesus. And Mary Magdalene got to the tomb of Christ only to find it empty, Right? And she stooped down to look in, and it says she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So there's an artist's rendering here, as you can see. And of course, when Mary Magdalene got there, there was no body. But do you see the same connection between the Ark of the Covenant and then what Mary saw when she got to the tomb? So if you can imagine, I mean, there's the angel on the left and the angel on the right. And in between, the angels are looking down. And rather than seeing Jesus, they're just seeing the stain of his blood on that mercy seat. And Mary would have seen the connection. She would have noticed that. So the mercy seat of the ark foreshadowed what Christ would become. And it literally happened. He became our sacrifice. And his death and resurrection satisfy the guilt of our sin so that we can receive God's mercy. And in light of this powerful, beautiful truth, I think even if I know it in my head, I just have had a hard time accepting it fully in my life. It's it's easy for me to believe that God is all-powerful, he's almighty, he's all-loving, we understand that. We know that he is so powerful and holy, we, we, we would burn up if we tried to look, to look at him face to face. And there's no limit to how amazing God is. But when it comes to his mercy, for some reason, we, we put limits on it. And we maybe believe that he forgives us like, like 99%, but maybe not 100 So it's a little bit like this. Like if I, I have a whiteboard here, so I've got sin and it's gross and ugly, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna clean it. There. All gone, right? All gone, right? All c- completely clean slate, right? Nope, I think sometimes we feel like our sin is like this it's kind of it's gone it's mostly gone it's mostly gone. I grew up in a Christian home I'm so grateful my parents love the Lord um, I grew up in a in a bible believing church it's called the Christian Reform church and I was raised knowing the Bible and a lot of theology um, and it, for which again i'm so I'm so grateful it really you know, was formative in who I am today, and uh, my grandfather actually was like the main Sunday school teacher. It was a pretty small church, and when I was a teenager, he started getting kind of weird in his teachings and his theology, and so by the time I was about 16, the church kind of between the pastor and my grandpa, there was like this big thing, and the church ended up splitting. It was like horrible and ugly, um, my parents didn't really want to leave the denomination, but because, like, for my mom, it was her dad. It was just this thing. So we ended up leaving, and um, and then my grandpa sort of started his own church. So we started going to that, and it just got really wacky um, after that. Thankfully, like, it's awesome, because by the time I was in college, my parents were like, we need to get out of here. And so they, they left that. Weird, almost cult-like situation. But um, one of the things that my... But from like 16 to 18, every week we would go to church. And my grandpa would teach that you can never really know if you're saved. All the way. So, and there was nothing you could really do. So he would say you can't do anything. But then he would say, so what you need to do is like beg for mercy like lord have mercy you have to just keep begging for mercy but it, you could never be like freed from that to actually receive it and it was dreadful because every week you're just like you you're just filled with unknown and doubt so i'm trying to follow along i'm trying to do the right things but i can never have the assurance and the reassurance that i'm actually saved and that it's over and it's done, and it's complete. So um, it was just a terrible place to live because you can never enter into God's love, his joy, like what's next now that I know that I'm saved. Um, you're trying to serve a God that you may that may or may not have mercy because maybe I didn't ask in the right way or I didn't ask enough times and like maybe maybe this time I'll get it maybe maybe I won't I don't know. But here's the problem: now that I'm 47 and I know, my grandpa was teaching mercy based on his capacity to show mercy. Not according to God's unlimited capacity. He was doing it from, he was projecting what God, God, how God works based on how he works. And for him, his kids never really knew if they were loved. You can see that. But really, we do the same thing. And my my grandpa uh, has passed away, and I know he's with the Lord. And he knows all the right things now. So that part is, is hopeful. But we, we kind of operate the same way. We forgive others and accept forgiveness from others according to our mercy. But my mercy is limited because it's jaded, it's subjective, it's, um, it's partial, it's, it's moody, right? I, I can recall things and remember things. I can hold grudges. I can hold grievances. I can come up with a list of, of things that, I, that people have done to me from way back when. My mercy is not complete and limitless. It definitely has limits. But it doesn't make any sense that we would, if you think about it, that we would attribute that to God. How can I apply my human capability to show mercy to God's power to forgive. That's like saying that he washed me partially, like this. Like, like he mostly washed me, but I'm st- there's still a smudge. There's, I'm still sticky. I, there's, there's still a part that remains. And that's not how God's mercy works. He obliterates our sin. He removes it entirely. And I think that, God, that David got that. David knew God's mercy. If we look for a moment in Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is the psalm that he wrote as a response to all of this gross stuff that he did, uh, all the sins that he committed with Bathsheba. And he starts, so he starts writing it, and he has made a full comeback. He moved on so completely that he's able to go back with a pure heart and write, Worship songs that we still read today. In Psalm 51, verse 1, we read, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And do you see the key here? Have mercy, O God, according to your unfailing love. Not my, unfa- my fail- failing love, but your unfailing love. And the reason why we can't get past things that we've done is because I can't get past it. I'm looking at me and the grossness of my sin, but God has abundant, unfailing mercy. And here's the question for us. How great is God's mercy? Is there a limit? We read in verse 2 of Psalm 51, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cuz if I wash me, I'm going to be like this. I'm still going to I'm going to miss a spot. But David calls out to God, "You wash me because I know what you do. You never do anything halfway. You never do a minimum job. Never. You go beyond what we could imagine." And that's why David had so much confidence. God, when you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. There's no blemish in me. God's mercy makes me totally clean. It's a blank slate, and it's done. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words were what? It is finished. His work was finished, and the divine mission that he came to do was completely accomplished. Like Jesus, He did it. So every sin, past, present, and future, has already been paid for. Every evil deed, judged, and the full and total price of our redemption has been purchased at the cross. And perhaps you're like me and need to be reminded to let go of the guilt and shame that sometimes has a, just a grip on us. Because, ladies, it is finished. Let Christ speak, it is finished, over you. And I need that reminder. There's a song um, called The War is Over, and there's a line in it that I just love. It says, it is finished, it is done. The blood of Jesus has overcome. In Micah 7, verses 18 and 19, it tells us, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God does not hold back on his mercy. Like how my grandpa taught, you know how you had to keep begging and like you're just kind of hoping that one of these times it'll take? God is not like that. He does not hold back. We don't have to beg and beg and then hope it'll happen. He delights to show us mercy. He wants to. And, in the, and later in the New Testament, we read in 1 John 1, 9 that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from like nine, 999 of our sin, right? No! He cleanses us, cleanses us from all of our sins. Now, the, the accuser, Satan, he's gonna try to convince you that you're a failure, that your life is over and you can't do anything good. Uh, only, only lie, he'll only lie and tell you there's nothing ahead, and he feeds your shame, and he's going to remind you, remember? Yeah, I know, but remember that one thing? Maybe that one thing you haven't confessed yet? Or that thing that just haunts you that happened, you know, yesterday or like 20 years ago? But in Jesus' name, it is simply not true. Guilt says, I made a mistake. But shame says I am a mistake. And the enemy wants nothing more than us walking around in our shame, doubtful of our salvation, and just doubtful that I'm not enough, I, I've disqualified, my, disqualified myself, I'll never measure up, and I don't belong. I don't belong in the kingdom. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him, Jesus, Who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, what do I become when Christ went on the cross for me? Not the cleaned up version of Christina that's like mostly pure. Nope. I became the righteousness of God. And we need to claim these verses. My sins are blotted out, and I am now. Wider than snow. Say that with me. My sins are blotted out. I'm whiter than snow. How different would our lives look if we believe this 100%? Like if we 100% believed in 100% of our purity in Christ's mercy, we'd be going nuts. It would change our family, our life, our workplace, It would, because guess what? When we receive all that, guess what we're going to pour out? We're not going to be pouring out my mercy, my flawed, partial, moody mercy. When I know this 100%, that's when I can go, I get it. I really get it. And then that authentic Mercy of God will flow out of me. And we can project now God's mercy into our relationships rather than my own broken one. So I want to ask you today, do you need to accept God's mercy? He delights in showing mercy to you. He loves you. He died for you. And we're here for you. And I would love if you would please talk to somebody on the leadership team, if you feel like you need to maybe accept God's mercy for yourself and you haven't been able to or if you're not sure you can forgive somebody or receive that forgiveness we want to meet with you and talk with you but um, as I close today I want us to open our hands and I'm going to pray for you God you are so good and thank you for the truth that you've Sprinkled all throughout your word that you, you love us and you delight in showing mercy to us, God. God, we want to confess our sins this morning if we have not believed this fully. That we've been trying to clean up our act on our own and haven't realized that we don't need to. Because you have accomplished everything that you have set forth from the very beginning. That Jesus would be the atonement, the finished work, the accomplished work, and that when we believe in you, we become your righteousness. We, we wear your robes of righteousness, God. And I pray that as we um, talk together and as we go about the rest of our weekend, Lord, that we would walk in the, this maybe new knowledge of your mercy, that we are 100% clean in you. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.